0: Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. let me start with the Dodgers and Padres. You know, I hate to say I told you so, but man, I bleeping told you so. I told you on Friday that Hell Weekend, a.k.a. the Dodgers-Padres three-game series, was going to be awesome, and then it was. In fact, it was even better than that. Per usual, nothing ever lives up to the hype, nothing except for that. That smashed it because it had everything you'd want. It had extra innings. It had dugouts emptying. It had, quote, bull bleep swings. Guys jawing at each other. An amazing game-winning catch. Two teams that really do not like each other. I've told you before, and let me say it again right now. This is not a baseball rivalry. This is the baseball rivalry. Take all your other baseball rivalries, throw them out the window at this point, because this is the only one that matters. Now, I know how hard the Dodgers work to let you know that they don't think it's that case. I know Corey Seager worked really hard before that series to say it's just another series. Except the thing is, it's not. I know why they say that, but it's not. Dodgers-Pirates is just another series. Dodgers-Padres is now a blood feud. That was a three-game series in mid-April that felt like a seven-game series in October. And it started Friday night with a game that went 12 innings and included 17 pitchers. The game was so good, it included moments like this. Fernando Tatis Jr. homering in his return to break a tie.
1: Struck out swinging
2: in the first in his return to the Padres starting lineup and activity after the 10-day IL stint. In the air to center field. Taylor going back. And Nando's left the building. Fernando Tatis Jr. returns to the Padres lineup and lifts it out of the yard.
0: Pretty cool. Pretty cool, right? Then the Dodgers take a one-run lead in the top of the ninth. Then Eric Hosmer coming to bat with two outs in the bottom of the ninth. Three for nine in his career against Jansen. Hosmer
2: on the ground. In the right field. Machado scores. Six to six. Eric Hosmer ties this game.
0: Listen how hyped they are. It's an April game. Then both teams trade scoreless 10th and 11th innings. Then the Dodgers break out in a huge way in the 12th, with Corey Seeger leading off with a two run bomb. That's right, I said it. He led off with a two run bomb because of the extra innings rule. Looking
2: for their first extra innings run. They missed their fourth try. Seeger gets into a ball. To the 12th, a two-run shot from Corey Seager. Dodgers 8, Padres
0: 6. I'll never get over that line. A lead off, two-run bomb. And then the breakout continued with an RBI single from Zach McKinstry. So instead
2: of the inning-ending double play, the Dodgers have the bases loaded, and Zach McKinstry bangs a single into center field. Turner comes in to score. Oh, Doctor, it is now 9-6. to
0: Right? And you want Wilde to cap it off. David Price hits a sack fly to Joe Musgrove in left to drive in a run in the 12th. And yes, that also is a real sentence. There's leading off an inning with a two-run bomb, and there's David Price with a sack fly. There's a fly ball into left field, and in the score is Taylor. It's now 11-6. to 6. David
2: Price was the hitter. Was the hitter. Well, it took a while, but now the game is turning into a laugher for the Dodgers. Well, Price, the pitcher, hit it to another pitcher who happens to be in left field. <laughs> sure. Off of the second baseman who's now pitching.
0: So all of this, and we're still talking about game one, right? The Dodgers win that game 11-6, and while the game was a lot closer than the final score, you know the Dodgers were pumped to go in and rip the series opener like that. But then things got even nicer on Saturday in the fourth when Clayton Kershaw appeared to have struck out Jerickson Profar to end that inning. But Profar was awarded first base on catcher's interference when his swing hit the glove of Austin Barnes. When was the last time you saw Kershaw that fired up, that bent? He thought that Profar did it on purpose. He let Profar know about it, shouting, quote, that's a bull bleep swing. Kershaw ain't like that. Well, maybe he is, but you don't see it very often. Profar heard Kershaw tell him that's a bull bleep, bull bleep swing. So he's started on first base and he fired right back, quote, shut the bleep up. Again, we're talking about April. This is not the dead of summer where tempers start to fray and flare. This is the start of the season and they're yelling obscenities back and forth. What I'm saying is these two teams could not have been more pissed, which means I could not have been happier myself. But Saturday was not only about bull bleep swings and shutting the bleep up. It was about Kershaw drawing a walk-off Hugh Darvish to take the lead. And then it was about L.A. taking a 2-0 lead into the bottom of the ninth. And San Diego's Tommy Pham coming to the plate with two on and two out. And then this happened. Gonzalez is 0-1. Slot of the right center field. Marcus, Lynn, Betts, if you need him, was so good. That's how you end a game, walking it off on a diving catch, which was amazing. The stakes could not have been higher. If he misses that, the game is tied, maybe even worse. In fact, I'm not sure what was better, the reaction from Betts or the reaction from the Padres. They were absolutely stunned. And they should be. You know, for all that talk about them getting bigger and stronger in the offseason, Big Brother rolled in there and gave them a serious wedgie in the first two games. And then they chased it by dunking their domes in the toilet for good measure. And then added even more insult to injury after the game when Kershaw said afterwards, you know what, it's not even a rivalry.
1: We're just trying to win a series. We don't really care about rivalries or who we're playing. We're just trying to win series here. That's really all that matters.
0: Gersh, in other words, we don't even care about you, man. We don't care enough to even call you a rival. I understand what he's saying. I know what he's doing. They are the defending world champs. They have dominated the Padres in that entire division for nearly a decade. A few offseason moves are not going to change how the Dodgers see the Padres. Not when they've owned them for as long as they have. Not when they've ripped off eight divisional titles in a row. Not when they're the defending world champs. It's awesome. It really is. But let's make no mistake, all right? Even if they won't say it, I will once again. It is a rivalry. It's a rivalry, and because it's a rivalry, the Padres had to get something out of it. Like, if you want it to be a rivalry, you cannot let your rival, your big brother, come into your place, break your faces, then break out their brooms. That can't happen, especially when L.A. is without Cody Bellinger. You can't let them turn that wedgie into an atomic wedgie. Not if you have any self or self-respect or dignity. So, when LA took a two-nothing lead in the second, it looked like that was going to happen. Which, why it was so important for Hosmer to come through to tie the game in the seventh and then give San Diego the lead in the eighth. And Eric Hosmer double tied the
1: game in the seventh.
0: Hosmer back up the middle into center field. Coming
2: around is Profar. Throw goes to third. And the Padres have got a
0: 3-2 lead. Man, they needed that so badly. The Padres needed that in the worst way. If you've spent all offseason building towards taking down the champs, you can't let them knock you the hell out at home in a three-game series. So the Padres salvaged their pride. They get some of their dignity back in the end. They had to show up on Sunday, and they did. They let everybody know. It is going to be a 19-round fight in the regular season, and it better include even more of that in the postseason because that more than lived up to the hype. It did. You see something like that, and you want to run it right back. Give me more. Luckily, we've got it. A four-game series at Dodger Stadium on Thursday. So let's do it because despite what the Dodgers say, it's not only a rivalry, it is the best rivalry in baseball right now. And the more the Dodgers say it's not, the more I know it is. See you freaking Thursday. Looking forward to more leadoff two-run home runs. More game-saving catches by Mook. More Padres telling Kershaw to shut the bleep up. And generally speaking, just a whole lot more hate. Somebody tell the commissioner, this is the best thing you have going right now. Don't jack it up. Dodger fan. Padre fan, get up in here, or are you drowning your sorrows in the gas lamp still? That was fun, man. That was good. Really, really good. Hey, you know what? Small changes towards a healthier lifestyle can add up in a big way, but maybe you're not sure where to begin. Let me talk to you about Grove Collaborative. Running to the store has been pretty stressful of late and there's nothing worse than forgetting something on your list and needing to make multiple trips. Shopping for home essentials should be easy and convenient and that's where Grove Collaborative comes in. Healthy plant-based non-toxic cleaning products that work and the good ones are actually more enjoyable to use. But where do you start and who do you trust? Grove Collaborative. Grove is the online marketplace that delivers healthy home beauty and personal care products directly to you. Grove Collaborative takes the guesswork out of going green. Browse the site for thousands of home beauty and personal care products, all guaranteed to be good for you, your family, your home, and your planet. So join over 2 million households who have trusted Grove Collaborative to make their homes happier and healthier, and shipping is fast and free on your first order. Making the switch to natural products has never been easier for a limited time. When you go to grove.co slash Rome, you will get to choose a free gift with your first order of $30 or more. But you have to use our special code. Go to grove.co slash Rome to get your exclusive offer. That's grove.co slash Rome. John Morosi is back. Great to have you, John. How are you?
2: Jim, I am outstanding, my friend. Hope you had a great weekend. And when I hear you opening the Monday show... With baseball off the top, my friend, I am excited, especially in April. And that is a great sign. I think it has something to do with that SoCal rivalry going on right
0: now. (laughs) It's got something to do with that, John. And you know exactly where I'm going with it. You can read my mind perfectly. Man, I was so fired up. If we go back to Friday, John, I was really excited for that series. Now that we have seen this series, in your opinion, how great was that? And then what does that tell you about the battle between these two teams that we can expect over the course of the season?
2: A great weekend for baseball. That's the headline for me, Jim, because uh, it lived up to the billing, to the hype. But we had three great games that were in doubt late. The signature Mookie Betts catch. You had the the Clayton Kershaw RBI. Uh, You had David Price with the key RBI. Uh, And then, of course, the Padres answering yesterday with a game they had to have. Now, it's hard to say a must-win in April, but this is going to be a rivalry we watch unfold during the season. And it would have been... Certainly not a great look at all for the Padres to be swept on their home field in April by the reigning World Series champions. So yesterday was a very important statement by the Padres. We know Tatis is not yet fully himself, but Machado and Hosmer delivered big for the Padres. Jim, overall, so many great storylines. And the thing I love about this rivalry, and what you said earlier in the show, is exactly right. This is the best thing going in baseball right now. And what's making it special is the characters involved. We know these players. You may have strong opinions about them. You may like them. You may not like them, depending on where you're at around the country. But we have characters with stories that we know, and I think that's giving this Rivalry, a great texture for us to follow during the course of the season.
0: Extremely well said. John Morosi is joining us. I agree with you, John. Like normally it would seem absurd to call a game in April a must-win game, but I think the Padres had to have that game and they get it. You know, you also pointed out, John, on Twitter that through four starts this season, Clayton Kershaw's ERA is 2.19, his second-best ERA at the point. This point in this season over the last five years, for a while now, people have been looking to bury him and saying that his best baseball is behind him. How does he look to you so far this year?
2: Very good, Jim. His fastball is lively, it is up in the zone, it's moving, the breaking stuff is sharp again. I think, Jim, as we look back over the last couple of years, and certainly Clayton spent some time on the injured list uh, going back the last several years at various points, and then I believe that he was the beneficiary of a lighter workload last year. Certainly he would have loved to have a full seven-month season. We all realize that everybody wanted that. But at the end of the day, he has pitched a lot of innings, Jim, and a lot of them have been high-stress innings. A lot in October, a lot of times when he was out there during previous incarnations of the Dodgers when they didn't have quite the same level of supporting cast, when he had to be the workhorse late in the season. That's not the way it is anymore. They can take him out an inning early when they have to and really manage his innings really, really effectively. So I think we're seeing the benefit now of some great management by Dave Roberts in the past and Dave Roberts and the adjustments that Mark Pryor's helped Clayton make Overall, the very good game planning they have, Jim. We're seeing the best version of Clayton that we have seen in a while. And as you mentioned, this is now one of the best starts he has gotten off to in the last half dozen years. A very good sign for the Dodgers right
0: now early on in the season. John Morosi is joining us. John, one more thought about the Dodgers before we move on. If anybody was expecting them to have a World Series hangover, they fire out 13 3. They've got a plus 38 run differential. What do you make of their start so far to the season?
2: Well Jim, I'm glad you asked it that way because we should make sure that we point out they have a former MVP and Cody Bellinger on the injured list right now. Right. They also lost Jock Peterson and KK Hernandez, two of the mainstays of the lineup for recent years. And so what happens? They take Zach McKinstry a 33rd-round draft pick from Central Michigan University here in the great state of Michigan, and they make him into a consistent, everyday player through some great player development. They've got a phenomenal player development director in Will Rhymes. That is how you become a dynasty in modern baseball. You can spend money like the Dodgers spend, but then you can develop players the way the Rays develop players. And all of a sudden, you're missing Bellinger, and you plug McKinstry in. Look how well he's playing. And I also want to point out, Talk about how Mookie Betts continues to amaze us. Remember, that game-saving catch he made the other night, that's playing his second position. He was playing center field. He's playing there because Bellinger's out. And that just speaks to the versatility of this team. They're off to such a great start. And the final point that I'll make, too, Jim, is that they've brought in some players who haven't won yet. Trevor Bauer hasn't won yet. You're changing out a few key pieces. You bring in Corey Canable in the bullpen. You bring in Jimmy Nelson in the bullpen. They've got four different relievers already have recorded saves, Jim. It is just about impossible to find a glaring weakness on the Dodgers roster right now.
0: John Morosi back in the jungle, and they will run it back starting Thursday with a four-game set. So, John, what about the other end of the spectrum? You've got the Yankees. They've lost five in a row. They've got the worst record in the American League. Exactly what is happening to them right now? Is it a bad start, or are there legitimate causes for concern?
2: It's a great question, Jim. I think it's a combination of both. And actually, as we speak right now, Brian Cashman is meeting with the media in New York. It doesn't sound like there's any announcement, any sort of shakeup, but this is what a GM in New York should do. When the team is playing poorly, be out front, be accountable, explain what's going on. One thing I've noticed, and the metrics back this up, uh, Fangraphs.com has them as the worst team in the American League East at hitting fastballs. And so if you're getting overwhelmed by fastballs and not producing and your rotation isn't quite lined up either, you're going to have a challenging season. And the thing that I think makes me the most concerned right now, Jim, is the AL East is a pretty mediocre version of itself. The Jays don't have Springer or Teoscar Hernandez. The Red Sox are getting by with really a creative roster and some good managing early this season by Alex Cora, but that's not a great Red Sox team. The Rays are off to a ho-hum start, too, and yet the Yankees can't take advantage. And that's what makes me concerned. The the overall depth of the club, we just talked about Zach McKinstry and and names like Rayleigh with the Dodgers and how, how good they are with some young players. The Yankees don't quite have that same level of depth. They've had some injury issues and some age showing up, And they have not been able to infuse that young depth to support them. And Jim, I I will say this older rosters like the Yankees have, you don't necessarily see a ton of growth in them in a positive way as the year goes along. Older roster, not performing well in April is usually a very bad combination.
0: John Morosi breaking down the American League East completely. I can't even follow any of that. You answered all my questions. John, what about Ronald Acuna Jr. leaving yesterday's game due to an abdominal issue? What have you heard about that? How concerning is that?
2: It's concerning because he's one of the best players in the game. And uh, the Braves hope to have more information on this, Jim, as the day goes along for some additional testing. But Before the weekend started, I was just getting ready to say, oh, my gosh, Acuna has arrived. There was so much buzz about Tatis and Soto in spring training, and I really think Acuna heard all that and said, okay, I'll show you guys just how good I am. And, and uh, Stake his claim to being the MVP in the National League this year, and now comes this injury. So uh, it looks like he could miss some time. Again, it's not clear yet just how much. But the Braves are one more team that's had a bit of a difficult start, certainly a, a better performance last night there uh, on Sunday evening. But this is a team in Atlanta that, that, much like the Yankees, has underwhelmed early. And if you take one of the best players in the game, out of their lineup for a period of time, a team like the New York Mets could surprise. The Philadelphia Phillies have been better than expected. That, that National League East, Jim, I believe is the best top to bottom in all of baseball, and the Braves can ill afford to be without someone as important as Acuna early this season.
0: John Morosi joining us. John, before you go, I cannot let you go without asking you about my guy, I'm supposed to be objective here, but I'm not. Not when it comes to Shane Bieber. He struck out 13, his fourth straight start with at least 11 strikeouts. The first pitcher in history to start the season with at least 10 strikeouts and four straight starts. He's coming off a Cy Young Award season. Could you make the argument that he's even better now than he was then?
2: He is indeed, Jim, the pride of Laguna Hills High School and UC Santa Barbara, of course, Shane Bieber. He's someone who we look to a lot and say, his ability to continue adapting, as you point out, and register these strikeouts. Bieber, in a lot of ways, is keeping the Indians in the playoff conversation this season because we've talked a lot about Lindor moving on. They've traded Kluver. They've traded Clevenger. They've traded Bauer in the last couple of years. They have the youngest rotation in all of baseball even after the success they've had, and Bieber is still what I would call a young veteran. He's continuing to get better, continuing to innovate, which is why in a very surprising AL Central, where the Royals are playing very well, do not count. The Indians out yet. Shane Bieber is the best pitcher in the American League. DeGrom maybe in the NL. It'd be a great debate to have Bieber versus DeGrom, but I might give the edge to Bieber. He's doing it in the American League and continuing to innovate and get even better. Day John, by day.
0: really quickly, can you kind of give me your thoughts on this or explain this? We're talking about a guy, and I've talked to Bieber about this. I've talked to his college coach, Andrew Checkets, about this. How do you explain a guy walking on in college, getting this good, this dominant, this quickly, the trajectory, his evolution, how do you explain that in a guy like that.
2: Well, that's a great question because it's it's a very rare thing. We saw actually Alec Mills uh, throw a no hitter last year. He was a walk on a Tennessee Martin. Uh, right. Baseball Jim is is not a linear sport, and I think that's the key thing. Sometimes, and this is where the the analytics and the, the newfound aspect of the game, and really identifying and scrutinizing your delivery. When you have those one or two little tweaks that change an arm angle here or there changes spin on your ball here or there, it can transform a pitcher from being an ordinary one into an extraordinary one. And right now, Shane Bieber is as good as it gets in all of baseball.
0: Let me remind you all, MLB Network is going to feature the Cards and Nationals tonight. That's 7 p.m. Eastern time. Plus the Dodgers and the Mariners tomorrow at 4 p.m. Eastern. You can watch John contribute to MLB Network studio programming throughout the entire week. Nobody better, John Morosi. John, I appreciate you. What a great hit, as always. Nice to have you back. Have a great week. I know we'll do it again soon.
2: Jim, you are the best in the business, my friend. Always look forward to our conversations, and thanks for, for the call again today. Really appreciate it. You
0: too, it. John. Thanks for making time. Let me tell you about an absolutely amazing product that I found, that I use, that I absolutely love. Theragun. Do not let the stress of daily life weigh on your body. Whether you're an elite athlete or somebody just like me, just trying to make it through the day tension-free, Theragun can help. Theragun is the handheld percussive therapy device that releases your deepest muscle tension using a scientifically calibrated combo of depth, speed, and power. And it's as quiet as an electric toothbrush. The Gen 4 Theragun does not just feel good, it gets to the source of the pain by releasing tension using Theragun's signature percussive therapy, which goes 60% deeper than vibration alone. I'm telling you, this product is absolutely amazing. And it's trusted by 250 professional sports teams like Real Madrid and elite athletes like Paul George, DeAndre Hopkins, Maria Sharapova, hundreds of thousands of customers and me. Try Theragun for 30 days, starting at only $199. Go to theragun.com/rome right now. Get your Gen 4 Theragun today. Some of the greatest athletes in the world are using it. You should too. Theragun.com/rome. Theragun.com/rome. How many of you actually did throw down for that circus pay-per-view that was Jake Paul and Ben Askren Saturday night? I did. I threw down for it. I paid for it. And while I'm not here to hate, I'm here to tell you it was a freaking circus. But not with circus animals, but rather circus human beings. And you got to make your own judgment, right, about the circus in general. In other words, to some, the circus is entertaining as hell. I mean, who doesn't like a freak show? The circus is weird. Generally, a circus is weird with weird things and weird people and weird is good. Or maybe you're on the other side. Maybe you think that the circus is not cool. Maybe you think the circus is cruel. Maybe you think that you're not going to throw down hard-earned cash to see a bunch of freaks and weirdos. In this case, there was a lot of that Saturday night and not a whole lot of actual boxing. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say that I watched that entire thing from start to finish, but I did watch a hell of a lot of it. And when I did watch... I did have trouble taking my eyes off that train wreck. And again, while there wasn't a lot of actual boxing, given the number of eyes and the amount of run that that freak show got, if I were boxing, the actual sport of boxing, I'd be pretty concerned. Especially if this promotion can get actual fighters and then rain some of that bleep in. So if you saw it or you threw down for it, are you happy with what you got in return or are you pissed with how it ended? because plenty of people were pissed at how the main event ended with Jake Paul stopping former MMAer Ben Askren in the first round. Now, that Paul won that fight is not surprising. The big head, James Kelly and I broke it down on big head bets last Friday. We both bet Paul. So the fact that he won is not surprising. But how he won, well, yeah, that's not surprising either. Look, I got to be straight. I love Ben Askren. Great dude. Great dude who had a great career as a wrestler. He had a fine career as an mma Solid, solid dude. Makes me laugh. I like him. I got a kick out of him. But there's a reason Paul and his team picked him to be their next mark. And it was actually pretty brilliant. They found the guy with the most name value, but the lowest actual risk to them. A guy who really can't strike. A guy who had hip replacement surgery a number of months back. A guy who was retired and a guy who even in the best of times was not in the best of shape. In other words, a guy who they knew that they could beat, that would give them cred. Brilliant strategy. No matter how much you hate that guy and his team, brilliant strategy. So knowing all of this, well, and I'll admit it, while I wanted Askren to win, I bet Paul. And then I had Askren on my podcast last week. Again awesome conversation, great dude. But while I appreciated his honesty, that whole thing about how if this guy isn't any good, I'm going to kick his ass. But if he can fight even a little, I could be in for a long night. But either way, I'm going to wake up and my bank account's going to be much bigger the next day. That whole thing from Askren that he told me on my podcast did not exactly inspire much confidence from me. So, I then bet the YouTuber again. I bet him a second time. And then, when I saw pictures of Askren, and that dad bod, and that he weighed in at 191, and not a good 191 either, I bet Paul a third time. I bet the YouTuber three different times. And I want Askren to win. So all along, I want this guy to win. I'm admitting it. I'm owning that. But I just kept hammering the YouTuber. And then the YouTuber stops him in the first round, and frankly, he looked pretty good doing it. Then the YouTuber, obviously, the fact is, approached this with a hell of a lot more professionalism than the former Olympian, at least in terms of preparation for the fight. One guy looked like he had done the work. The other guy looked like he walked right in, out of retirement, right off the street, And had not been training. One guy looked like he was there to dominate. That it was personal. The other guy looked like he was there to get a fat paycheck. I'm not saying that Jake Paul is ready to fight any actual boxers. I'm saying that he's putting in work. And he's got some ability. And he made Ben look really, really bad. And MMA Nation was not happy about it. Except that portion of MMA Nation that wants a piece of Paul for what they perceive to be a very easy payday, right? But MMA Nation overall was really upset over how bad their guy made them look. Much like NBA Twitter clown Nate Robinson hard when Paul knocked him the hell out. Now let me hit on a few of these conspiracy theories really quickly. You know, that Askren took a dive or that the ref was on the take, or that the fight was fixed. Personally, as much of a circus as that entire night was, I'm not buying any of that. I'm not buying any of that. The YouTuber caught Askren with a good right hand. That was not some phantom punch like the one we saw earlier in the night where dude was acting like he got hit by and dragged by a train after a glancing blow. This guy hit Askren with a pretty good shot. And then Askren gets up, and he seemed pretty inclined to continue. Which brings me to the point about the ref. While the stoppage may have been premature and frustrating as hell, there was nothing in the referee's decision that makes me think, oh, that guy was on the take. That guy got paid. He wouldn't have done that unless they were paying him under the table. In other words, it's not like Ben Askren was ahead on all cards in the last round and then got knocked down with a lucky punch wanted to continue, and the ref waved it off. I mean, yes, he probably should have let him continue because he beat the count, he got up, he seemed fairly lucid, and he wanted to go on. But it didn't matter. He probably wasn't getting out of that round anyway. And believe this, he was not going to win that fight. There was no way he was going to win that fight. So to me, the fix, as many of you see it, was not in. The fix... As it is with any fight, can exist in the matchmaking, right? Follow that. Follow that line of thinking. If you take an out of shape, bloated, retired MMAer who could not use any of his wrestling skills or any other MMA skills, could never strike in the best of times, that guy's not gonna beat a younger, stronger, bigger boxer who does have some skills. That's how you, quote, fix the fight, in the way you matchmake the fight. So, yes, it was disappointing as hell to see a guy like Ben go out like that. But looking at him and listening to him in the days leading up to the fight, it's not at all surprising. I'm sure he would tell you he doesn't care about the optics. Good thing, too, because as decorated as my guy is, his career ends with two of the worst looks ever. He was on the receiving end of the shortest knockout in UFC history, and he just got his ass kicked by a YouTuber. One thing for a YouTuber to kick another YouTuber's ass. One thing for a YouTuber to kick a former NBA player's ass. But quite another for a YouTuber to kick the ass of a respected MMAer. So, good night for Paul, bad night for Ben. And where that leaves the rest of us really depends on your point of view. But I do know that was not a good night for boxing. I know that. Because you could take two high-level boxers and a big-time title fight, and it still would not have gotten as many eyes or clicks or buzz or run that that bleep show did Saturday night. Right? If I'm boxing, I'm concerned. As for Ben, it's a terrible look, man. It's a terrible look. But in Ben's defense, nobody handles bad looks better than Ben. I'm disappointed in this guy, but I can't help but love this guy, even after it happened, for saying things like this.
3: Ben, unfortunately, with the loss and the way it went down, there'll be a level of ridicule that comes with it undeservedly. Were you prepared for that coming in, in and what's coming, essentially? It. Probably deserved Why? Why do you feel that way? I got knocked out by Jake Paul. It's embarrassing.
0: <laughs> it's good, man. That's strong. This guy's trying to give it out like, yeah, unfortunately... Ben, you're going to get a lot of criticism, and it's going to be undeserved. And Ben's all, oh, no, I deserve it. Well, why do you say that, Ben? Because I got knocked out by Jake Paul, and it's bleeping embarrassing.
3: I got knocked out by Jake Paul. It's embarrassing.
0: Right. Hey, you want to hear something utterly amazing? Discover matches all the cash back that you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year automatically, with no limit on how much you can earn. Now, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. That's where. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com yes. 2021 Nielsen Report. Limitations do apply. My guy, Jason Lockinfora, JLC. What's going on, Jason? How are you?
3: What's going on, buddy? I don't I don't know about legendary status, but I'll I'll certainly take it. I'll you take are it. that. You are
0: that. Ask me. You are that. All right, so a lot to get to, but let me start with the breaking news, Jason, that Alex Smith has announced his retirement. When you look back on the injury and that comeback, how amazing was it and what's it mean for him to be able to leave the game on his own terms?
3: Yeah, I mean I think it, it defied um, logic and and medicine at various points, yet it 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 still happened. Um, and it happened basically because of Alex Smith's singular belief in making it happen and his willpower and dedication to that end. Um, but obviously he was, he was very limited from a physical standpoint this season with Washington. And it wasn't a great offensive line. And, and, you know, look, they won that pathetic division, but by no means were they a juggernaut. Uh, and, and, so I, I get that that was part of it, but if you really watched him play, uh, it, it, to me it looked like a potential accident waiting to happen, and he did get hurt relatively quickly, and and you know on that leg, and I was wondering if there would be a market for him. I didn't think there'd be a market for him, except for maybe as a as a third quarterback who's really there to hold a clipboard to mentor. And, and maybe, to sort of be a de facto coach, but I had a hard time thinking that teams would look at where he was right now, and they would confab with their doctors and the insurance companies or whatever and say we 're going we 're going to give this a shot um, and I think Alex goes out not um not having to worry about that next hit being his last hit, and not having to worry about. I did all this to come back, and now I'm going out on a stretcher or or whatever. Um, I I think he he obviously um, surpassed any normal set of expectations for what he'd be able to do from a physical standpoint, let alone a playing football standpoint. And ultimately, for him, it's going to be for the rest of his life much more about how I feel and what I can do physically versus, you know, my ability to ever be one of the 32 or 64 or 100 best quarterbacks on the planet.
0: Right. An amazing story. I think it does end extremely well, and he does go out on his own terms. So that's a great thing. Jason for joining us. So if we shift to the NFL draft, it's been a 4 conclusion. Jason, that almost literally for as long as I could possibly remember that Trevor Lawrence was going to be the top pick and it's been pretty much gospel for a while that Zach Wilson is going to go second. However, based on your reporting, does everybody in the league believe and assume that the Jets will take Wilson?
3: Um, Not everybody. I think the vast majority do and 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 even more believe that Wilson is the second pick than believe that Mac Jones is absolutely, positively, intuitively, the third overall pick. But I do think it makes sense, especially at, at a point in time like now, a couple of weeks out or 10, week, ten days out, to just step back and kind of think about, well, why do I believe this so strongly? You know what I mean? Like, how did this get to be such a thing to the point where it's now a slam dunk, fait accompli, nothing to see here? And are we really, really sure – because a lot of these narratives were being formed, and I'm as guilty of it as anyone, and I have heard for a really long time that Wilson was very likely um, to be the Jets guy at two, and I still think that's the case, but you know, Justin Fields didn't do his final workout until just a few days ago, and um, at one point, people would have said Fields, just based off where they were in their careers alone, was going to be the two. I thought he would drop because of these... You know, these ideas that he can't read the field. I saw all that coming. It came. Um, but now we're getting to, to go time, and you do go back to the film, and you do look at what he did against some of the best competition available uh, in the college ranks, and I don't think he's going to have any sort of fall. There are certainly people in the league who, who would tell you, um, without a dog in the fight, that if I was sitting there at two, I would take fields over. Over Wilson. Um, ultimately, is that what the Jets do? Um, we'll see. If I had to do a mock right now, I would still put Wilson there. Um, but I don't think I'd put Mac Jones at, at three right now. I wouldn't do it with tremendous conviction. And could there be a scenario where it goes Lawrence, Fields, Wilson, New England trading to four for Mac Jones? Hmm. I don't think that's. It that doesn't seem crazy to me. No,
0: I don't think that that seems crazy or far-fetched. What I'm trying to get my head around is this. You've made the point that there are a lot of people looking to tear down fields. Why do you think that he's getting trashed for most of this evaluation process? What's going on here?
3: I, I don't really know, um, Jim. You know, there, there are certain kids who just become polarizing figures in the scouting community. And sometimes it might be because of something they say, like with Cam Newton and him saying, I want to be an icon or whatever. And, oh, my God, you know, to a certain segment of mock draft nation and scouting nation. Boy, that was an abomination. It, it, it's silly. See, like even this Trevor Lawrence stuff right now. You know what I mean? Like people don't like exactly what he said to S.I. And now, like, well, I don't know how motivated he is. I mean, he's been, he's been he was the best, you know, sixth-grade quarterback on the planet, the best seventh-grade quarterback on the planet, the best eighth-grade quarterback on the planet, best ninth-grade quarterback on the planet. Like, is all that an accident? Like, he doesn't have enough of a chip on his shoulder? I just think that there's just so much baloney and BS that's just become more and more baked into this draft cake. I mean, a year ago, Jim, there, the whole thing was, man, if the Dolphins don't take Tua at five, like, he might be there at 22. No! No! It wasn't going to be the case. And none of these kids are perfect, and I understand them being critiqued, and that comes with the territory. But it just seems like sometimes the pendulum on certain kids swing way out of line to it's like, well, wait a minute. Am I just going to believe what I read, or am I going to watch with my own eyes and talk to people I really know and trust about this stuff um, and and kind of try to come back to, to some normalcy? I, I I don't know all the time why certain kids wear this sort of scarlet letter in the scouting community. You know, of he's the one we're throwing the most arrows at. Maybe it's to try to hope that by doing this, he somehow falls to where their team could get get him. Um, but I, I, the slander, you know, is it, it was real. The the crux of a lot of what was behind it, I think, was fake.
0: Jason forward for joining us, listen, I, I read and listen and hear everything this time of year, but much of it, I just throw right out the window. Yeah. Like if you're hearing it, there's a reason why you're hearing it. And it's because it serves somebody sure. but that doesn't mean that it's true. I mean, you and I know this, and it's been like this for quite some time, Jason, you mentioned the Patriots. So let me ask you about that. There is that suggestion that they might trade up and draft a quarterback in some ways that feels very unlike the Patriots. But to your point, could you see that in fact happening? Yeah. And if so, who might they want?
3: Yeah, I mean, look, I I do think they like Mac Jones a lot. Um, I think they like a couple of these kids quite a bit. Now, obviously, four is probably, you know, two is not trading out, and three traded to get there. So four is is really the highest spot possible. Um, And I think there's a couple of kids who who they would be comfortable with. Um, And Mac Jones, they obviously have the Alabama connections through Saban and is is he's not the most physically gifted kid in the world, but you know, he, he might be a little bit more plug and play and, and ready before some of these other ones who who probably could really benefit from a full red shirt season. I mean especially Trey Lance given how little he's played and the level of competition he's played against. Um so it's not really in their DNA, um but the Steelers were not a team that traded up for picks very regularly, right? They hadn't done it for a player, I mean, excuse me, uh, since Troy Polamalu, And then they did it for Bush a couple years ago. You know, at certain points in time, you have to do what you have to do. And New England's considered a lot of quarterbacks in recent years. And, heck, they've been drafting them for a long time as well. Jacoby Brissett, Jimmy Garoppolo. Uh, but given where they are right now, I don't know. They're just waiting to see who's there will make sense for them. You know, I think at Denver at 9 could be a spot to trade to. Maybe even the Lions at 7. Uh, I think Dallas at 10. There's, there's a lot of potential um, moves to be made. But, yeah, they're going to have depending how high they go, they're obviously going to have to part with a lot of draft capital. But um, they've got a decent amount of it.
0: NFL draft right around the corner. Jason Lockett, breaking it down for us. All right, GLC, before you go, quickly, near the end of your piece... For CBSSports.com today, you had a nugget on the teams that would be interested in Aaron Rodgers in 2022. What kind of teams are we talking about, and how might that work in terms of a trade and a Rodgers contract?
3: Yeah, I, I, there'll be a number of teams. It's, it's something that people around the league have been chatting about um, since you know Jordan Love was drafted a year ago, and certainly since Aaron Rodgers' comments after their playoff loss, and then even some of his more recent comments, um, with his Jeopardy stint done, I, there's, a, there's a, a, a probably a quarter of the league right now that's um, either renting a quarterback or maybe renting to own who would all look at Aaron Rodgers as a significant upgrade. Um, you know, New Orleans, Denver, I mean, pretty much every team in the NFC North except for Green Bay. Um, You know, even a Carolina with, with a David Tepper as an owner, um, I know they just did this Sam Darnold thing, but if he thinks he's got a two or three year window to win a Super Bowl with Aaron Rodgers, that won't stop him. There are a number of teams that would be willing to do that. And Aaron Rodgers, um, might be able to rattle chains enough to make that happen in the next calendar year. And at some point, you know, you took that other kid for a reason also. So that, that, that situation is far from, um, settled, Jim.
0: JLC, on the way out the door at JLC, because you needed more work to do. I mentioned (laughs) off the top that you are the co-host of Positive Spin Rate. What is that podcast all about, and how did that come to be?
3: Yeah, um, just a a few friends I got to know through uh, our mutual love of bad baseball teams. and, (laughs) And actually, my friend Heather, who's an Orioles fan like me, had the idea of doing a podcast where we try to find the best things about the worst teams in baseball on a weekly basis. And then also have a lot of fun when teams like the Yankees, um, you know, stub their toes, which they've been doing a lot of lately. So yeah, like the Mariners, the Tigers, the Orioles, um, uh, the Pirates, basically the six worst teams in baseball, the Rangers. Every week we get together and have some cool guests as well. And, uh, You know, bad ball, good times, Jim. So you know I love baseball, so it's a a cool way to uh, exercise that.
0: Bad ball, good times. I love it. He's an NFL insider for CBS Sports and CBSSports.com, co-host of Inside Access on 105.7 The Fan in Baltimore, and now also co-host of Positive Spin Rate Podcast, JLC. Appreciate you, my brother. Great to have you back. Thanks so much for doing it. Thanks for having me, brother. Talk to you soon. Are you craving some protein after a good workout? Of course. This time, change up. Do not make a shake. Do not eat a bar. Instead, reach for a bag of beef jerky from Old Trapper. Why Old Trapper? Because Old Trapper beef jerky is tasty and tender. It's made with real strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a wood fire. Old Trapper is also a family-owned business that takes smoked beef very seriously. And you can taste it in every single bite. Like who wants dried, rough beef in a bag? Nobody. It's like eating a shoe. Old Trapper, though, is the real deal. It comes in four amazing flavors. Old-fashioned, teriyaki, peppered, and hot and spicy. So the next time you want a great protein and energy snack that you can have anytime, anywhere, grab some Old Trapper beef jerky. Look for Old Trapper in the Clearview bag. That way you can see the quality that you're buying. Look for it in major retail stores near you. If you don't see it, ask for it by name because no other jerky compares Old Trapper or What's Your Beef. As rough a night as that was for Ben Askren, he didn't even have the worst night. Of everybody involved. That honor goes to Oscar De La Hoya. And he didn't even fight Saturday night. He was part of the commentary team. And it did not take very long before he was trending on Twitter. I've always said, if you're announcing an event, you should not be the event. So if you're announcing a fight and you're the one trending on Twitter and not the fighters, that's a really bad sign. If people notice what you're doing on the mic, you best be Iron Eagle. Or Kevin Harlan. And if you're not either one of those two legends, you're in big trouble. And on Saturday night, Oscar was in big trouble. Everything about his performance Saturday night was a really bad sign. Starting with the time he was asked about who he was going to fight later this year. Listen to what he uncorked in response to that question.
2: With the golden boy, Oscar De La Hoya, July 3rd
0: on Trillify Club pay-per-view. Oscar, what can we expect? You can expect a fing real fight. Whoa! A f-ing real fight. A real fight. Yes. Whatever I pick to be my opponent, you bet your ass I'm gonna be the best mother f-er out there. Alright, so then he's asked why he would get back into the ring. At age 48. Here is his response to that.
3: Mike Tyson, I love you because you inspired me at 56 years old to make me think and make me know
0: that I can do it. You looked great. You feel great. You were amazing. And guess what? Yeah, all right. I guess one problem with Oscar saying how great Mike looks and feels. Problem being, Oscar, you look like crap. And you sound even worse. And I'm guessing you can't feel much at all at this point. And then when he started calling the fights, it did not get much better. Here was his take on Frank Mirror versus Steve Cunningham.
2: Look at, look at, he looks like a Dadonis. He looks like he looks beautiful. He looks in shape.
0: He looks like a Dadonis. Look, I'm not going to visually indict somebody, and I don't want to cast judgments and aspersions based on how somebody sounded, but my man did not sound good at all. He didn't sound sharp. He didn't sound crisp. He didn't sound fresh. In fact, he sounded disjointed and slurring. I'm not saying he was because I don't really know, but you know what he sounded like? He sounded plastered. Look
3: at the Thomas.
0: And then there were his attempts to refer to Cunningham, whose nickname is USS. But Oscar kept calling him USSR. And then he came up with something totally new on this clip. He's but move side you. to side. Move the head. Move the head side to side. Don't smother yourself.
2: Keep your distance. Keep your distance. Throw your punches long and you can take
3: down the USSR.
0: <laughs> I mean, what was that? The The U-S-S-A! U-S-S-A! Then there was a moment where, according to the Sporting News, Oscar was caught on mic saying, quote, put my face on screen more. End quote. U-S-S-A! Normally I would say that that would be a good idea for your brand, but not Saturday night, Oh, The less people saw you and heard from you, the better. And if you were taking a drink... Every single time Oscar said, baby, you were going to be sounding worse than he sounded in just a matter of moments.
3: The U.S.S.A.
0: If I didn't know any better, I would say he sounded like a guy who had a whole hell of a lot of evening before the evening. It sure sounds like he was on something before he got on that mic. I have not heard somebody like that. Calling a sporting event sound like that? Since my guy Rick Sutcliffe was talking about George Clooney and Bill Murray back in the day.
1: George Clooney, you've been reading about all that. You've been seeing that. George Clooney. Yeah. Here's Ben Johnson. He's up there with. um, He's up there with the Congress. He's trying to get everybody to go over there and solve that thing. That misses low a ball on his strength. Pretty good pitch there. I'm getting yelled at from Bill Murray in the back. I need to go. I'd much rather hang with you guys than him. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Sut.
0: He can wait. Yeah, Sut. My man Sut, a little bit faded that night, but not as bad as De La Jolla. Listen, I'm not saying that O-D-L-H was O-U-I, but he sure did seem to be under the influence of something or a bunch of things. Or all the things. And it would be really easy for me to clown this guy right here. But we're talking about a guy who's talked about his battle with addiction in the past. So when he shows up sounding like a guy who is still battling an addiction, to me it's pretty dumb and pretty tasteless to kill him for it or mock him for it. But based on that performance on Saturday night, man, I'm concerned. That guy is going to get into a ring in a few months. That sounds like one of the worst ideas ever. What if the guy gets into the ring under that same condition? And I'm no substance abuse counselor, but that sounded like a guy who needs to be stepping into the ring against addiction and not stepping in against some guy who wants to punch him in the face repeatedly, just so we're clear. They didn't pull this guy out of the crowd for a quick hit on the mic. I'm pretty sure he was not just partying in the back, and then some intern said, hey, Mr. De La Hoya, can we get you for a couple of minutes? Can you throw on a headset? Can you come on out here? No, that was planned. He was employed. He was hired to work on Saturday night. And he showed up for work in that condition. How does that happen? How does a guy show up and sound like that on the air? And I don't even care if he was sober. In fact, if he was sober... Not only does that not make it better, it makes it worse. Like, I'm literally concerned for this guy. That was not a good look, and that was not a good sign. And I'm not going to diagnose somebody based on me seeing them on TV because that would be reckless. But not saying something also seems reckless to me. That feels like a dude who needs help badly. Needs it in the worst way. He needs people around him who are willing to step in and tell him what he needs to hear. Because shouting out about how much you love Mike Tyson is not good enough. And neither is describing a boxer like this.
2: Look at, Look at. He looks like a D'Adonis. He looks like he looks
1: beautiful. He looks in shape.
0: We've got a few moments with Jordan Palmer. Jordan, good to have you back. How are you?
1: I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me.
0: Always good to have you, Jordan. So let me just jump right into this. I want to ask you about Trevor Lawrence. There was an interesting piece in SI recently where he said, quote, I don't have this huge chip on my shoulder. Everybody's out to get me, and I'm trying to prove everybody wrong. End quote. Personally, Jordan, I really, really like that response. For some guys, it works to have made-up criticisms and to keep putting chips on their shoulders. But if that's not who you are, is there any point in doing it just because other people expect it?
1: No, not at all. I think uh, so much about uh, this game and this position, more importantly. And then when you talk about the upper echelon of guys, you know the the top couple players in the league or the top couple picks in that this draft class, you know, any year, um, a word that never gets thrown around in the media, and I don't hear it thrown around a lot in the scouting circles either. But it's huge in the locker room. Is authenticity? How authentic are you? Are you a fraud? is this for show is this for the gram or are you just being true and honest to who you are and the great ones i've been around are really authentic even if they rub people the wrong way even if they speak their mind and not everybody loves it or if they speak their mind and they're just being honest that they don't need the same motivation that the people around them need to be motivated and i think that's what's happened here with trevor is he's incredibly honest and authentic it's pretty hard to knock somebody. I think his record in high school and college is like 86 and four. So it's pretty hard for some reader of a magazine to point out and say, well, that's not going to work. Um, and a guy that he's so sure of himself and confident that you know, he's just kind of laying it out there. Look, this is how I tick, And, um, this is what's worked for me. And I don't think anybody who reads that and says he's not internally motivated or that's not enough for him to be great. Uh, that's their own opinion. And, uh, and it's why he's had the career he's had and, Um, and they haven't.
0: I think that's an awesome response. I love that, that if you're authentic, you're not doing it for the show or quote the gram. Another word, Jordan Palmer, my guest, you mentioned authenticity. Also, another word you just mentioned right there is confidence. You've made the point that for a quarterback to have success in the NFL, it takes more than just physical talent. You need to have not only confidence, but true confidence in yourself and maturity. So how would you rank him when it comes to confidence and maturity?
1: Uh, He's got plenty of both. I mean, from a maturity standpoint, I don't like to, to, to answer, you know, rank guys or here's what I think about this guy based off my personal interactions. I'd rather just do it off what the data says, right? So for him, he's 86 and four. If I'm off, I'm off by a game or two. Um, and from a maturity standpoint, look, this guy really, actually, this off season, by the way, came in as a true freshman and went undefeated and won a national title, right? And then the sophomore year backs that up big way. And the only only game he lost was to, you know, Joe Burrow's historic year. Um, but really this off season, he really started the let us play movement. You know, people forget because of the, you know, the way what's been going on in the world. We forget the origin of last football season. And I'm not talking about college. I'm talking about football at every level. And it started in college with the let us play movement. And I know that the NFL was watching to see how the NCAA was going to handle the pandemic. And he really used his platform to start the let us play movement then. and, And the irony of that. Jim, if there's one player in this draft class that did not need to play football this year and would not have had his draft stock affected, I think 100 out of 100 people would agree that it's Trevor Lawrence. So I, the irony there is, is, is thick. Um, the second thing is when George Floyd died, he used his platform to really put himself out there and help unite and help with social injustice. So again, uses his platform to do that. He just got married. He went through that whole thing. So just the maturity of how he's handled situations um, situations he's never handled before, but he handled them as if he had already, that shows me maturity. It kind of doesn't matter what I personally think. That's just what I've seen and we've all seen. And then on the confidence side of things, you just don't, you know, because are the, 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 the top recruits in the country, every year there's a kid who's the top recruit in the country. Not all of them end up going number one overall. And so this kid has managed the expectations because of how authentic and confident he is. And then he's had these three great years of college football, and, uh, and now here he is stepping into the league. He knows what he's going into. And he's in a position where I think he knows what he needs to work on and knows what he, what he has that's going to translate to the game. And that confidence is going to show on Sundays.
0: Great, great stuff. Jordan Palmer joining us. Jordan, before you go, and I wish we had more time, but before you go, I want to ask you about Shane Bouchel, somebody else you're working with this year. You recently had a really interesting Instagram post where you wrote, quote, he's raising the bar in terms of what a dude in his early 20s can teach a guy in his mid-30s. End of quote. That's really interesting to me. How would you describe him as a quarterback, and what have you learned from him?
1: You know, Shane is a guy that, I, you know, I don't know what round he's going to get drafted. I don't really care. I think he's going to play 12 to 15 years. And if there was a place I could uh, put a bet on that, I would. Um, this is the type of guy, his balance of just being like kind and a caring person, which I know a couple of listeners right now are going, what the heck is this guy talking about with quarterbacks? The balance of that, but also competitiveness, where he is just not going to lose anything to anybody, basketball, baseball, chip shots, goalposts, any inning, that balance is very unique. And so you get a guy who's not afraid to be – kind and caring and ask you how you're doing and care. But at the same time, he's not interested in losing at all. You know, he's a high draft pick baseball player. His father played forever in the majors. His uncles did too. Started as a true freshman, broke Colt McCoy's freshman quarterback records at Texas. Transfers because it kind of got ripped from his hands. And this guy, you know, he got benched for, for Sam Ellinger. And then when Sam got hurt in two different games, one game he went 10 for 10, the other game he went 9 for 10. So just coming off the bench after being benched, and just walking back in and balling transfers to a school and breaks all the records, you know, he's six foot one and he ran a four eight and all the measurables are going to say, uh, eh, whatever. But I'm just telling you, this guy is, is, uh, you know, he's a chase Daniel case Keenum type guy where you're going to go, man, this guy's still playing or he's going to end up starting somewhere. And you're going to go, man, this guy became a starter. And so it's been a blast to be around that guy and watch a guy go through his journey with his mindset And these kids, Jim, I'm telling you, these kids at 20 and 21 are getting more and more mature every single year. Good night now!